Writers' Festival Radio. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival. We're broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabeg, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome you to Season 3 of the podcast. Our official bookseller is Perfect Books on Elgin Street, and wherever you are right now, there's an independent bookseller nearby who would be more than happy to sell you some great books. Thank you for listening and for allowing us to continue to celebrate and support great writing. Our host today is Chris Johnson, managing editor of Arc Poetry Magazine. They perform with the Sound Poetry Ensemble Quatuor Gualor and is a member of the creative collective Seven. Their recent chapbooks include Listen Partisan and Gravenhurst. Chris spoke with poet Evan Jay about his debut collection, Ripping Down Half the Trees. Here's Chris Johnson in conversation with Evan Jay. Hi there, everyone, and welcome to the Ottawa International Writers' Festival podcast. I'm excited to be talking to Evan Jay about his debut poetry collection, Ripping Down Half the Trees, out now with McGill-Queen's University Press. Evan Jay is an award-winning poet, including the 2018 Vallum Award for Poetry, and the director and founder of the now-defunct Slackline Creative Arts series in Toronto. Uh, he currently lives in Sioux Lookout, which is a relatively large town, I guess, for northwestern Ontario. Uh, Me, yeah, medium, uh, maybe. It's a <laughs> medium-sized town. Uh, when you get up to that neck of the woods, it's all relative, I guess. Um, he works on numerous things, including uh, writing and editing and helping operate a drop-in centre for Indigenous adults experiencing homelessness and or addictions. But I wanted to start off just by saying congratulations on the book and uh it's a really beautiful thing and how does it feel how how was the process of releasing it and what's the feedback that you've got on the book so far that's a fun question um i i it's fun because i remember living in ottawa i we're, wasn't always directly with you but experiencing the ottawa writer scene and i remember people coming back after releasing you know like a series of chapbooks over five, 10 years and finally saying like, here's a real book <laughs> and how much of a big deal that was for those writers. And, uh, yeah, to get to that point was, is, is fascinating. Uh, and it was good. It was a really good process. It took, you know, as expected, several years and dozens of people. And, uh, and I, I, I really am super thankful to all of those people, both for the, the editing they did in the process, but also all the people, of course, connected with learning and uh those people are countless right all the way from that ottawa scene over the course of seven years all the literary journals all the other poets all the reading series it's quite a quite a lot of people that help you become a poet so yeah it's cool that's true and i wanted to talk a little bit um maybe later maybe we can come back to it or maybe we can just talk about it now because Lori Graham was your, at least one of the editors on this book. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Lori's great. Yeah. Yeah. And you've had like quite a bit of experience. You worked with her at, um, the Literary Review of Canada. At is that uh, right? Brick. She's at Brick. At Brick. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. Lori was super helpful to, to everybody, of course, that goes through Brick. Um, you can see she's like, the current person at Brick passing on loads of knowledge to tons of authors as 
she was that person before that who the people like like uh, um, Andache and Spalding and Dion Brand passed their knowledge on to Laurie. And so it's like, of course, you uh, if you have the opportunity now to work with Laurie, you're getting a bunch of knowledge and expertise from all of those people as well. And so, yeah, she was super grateful, super, super helpful to pass it on to me at Brick. And then I've, of course, just didn't want that connection to uh uh to to lag or go anywhere so i've made a point to to stay in contact with her and then utilize her help whenever i can and yeah she she did wonders uh taking a not successful draft of the book and turning it into something that that uh publishers wanted so thank you lord oh that's cool so she she's been working on this manuscript with you for like since before you started shopping yeah we worked on it back in uh uh it's like what are we in twenty uh twenty like in early twenty twenty i guess maybe late twenty nineteen we did a a series of back and forth and um yeah and and I would say I don't know how many people think about this, but I think of her work, especially that like settler's education book of hers i think any any kind of white settler writer who's trying to make some kind of uh racial political difference colonial difference has to look at that book as, as a real staple for how to write a, a socially conscious book of poetry. And, uh, at least that, that's what I think, at least that book on top of a lot of others. But I saw that and I saw Laurie and said, okay, here's a really good example of how to be a, a better white person. Um, yeah. In a lot of ways, I do see your book as being related to, uh, settler education, her, her, um, when did that book come out? 16? 2014 or 16, yeah. I want to say. Yeah, 2016. Uh, yeah, I see them as being very related to each other in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, m- mainly the like immediacy and the moral consciousness that you talk about. Um, but that kind of leads into like, yeah, the getting into the meat and potatoes of the talk about your yeah, collection, sure. like, uh, <laughs> it's, it's a, it's a hard book to read in some ways. Uh, it's, it's a really, um, uh, bare view of, uh, it, it contains a lot of anger and ire that you seem to have towards a lot of different systems in place in Canada. Uh, that's what my and, mom says as well. When she read it, my mom, my mom, my <laughs> sister. Yeah. No, I just find it's such a it's a good comment. It is so it's it is it was so strange to hear that for the first time and now to keep hearing it through interviews and media I've been doing because I don't find myself to be angry or upset or sad, but it uh, uh, is certainly the way I'm writing for whatever reason. A bigger conversation, but uh, uh, yeah, the book the book has that anger in it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and that's a good point. Like you don't seem to be a very angry person, but you're just kind of aware, uh, you're kind of living in the world and like, uh, viewing the, the, um, injustices and inequalities. And you're just, it seems like you're just enable, unable to sit idly by and, um, not comment on any of them. Um, so it's interesting that you decided to turn them into poems in a lot of ways. Uh, and yeah, may, maybe you can start off by talking a little bit about um, the methods that you like 
took to to ensure that you're telling the stories and representing the communities that appear in these poems in the most respective way possible. Um, yeah, did you have some sort of criteria, uh, self-imposed or otherwise, um, to to how you approached telling the stories that you do? Yeah, another great question. Um, almost like the question of our decade, right? Like as writers, right? Um, but even before that question, uh, um, I've had this, this fascinating internal thought over the past five, six years of being a writer, um, being a writer within that like social discussion of like, what should you write about? And it's always this like this um, bit of a pull between one side of like, as an artist, you just like feel the need to create and, and do like, for me, it is, I, I use the word artist because I trying to, poetry is the one that I feel I'm good at and I like doing it, but there's lots of other arts that I'm engaging with them and that I like. Um, but anyways, that, that side of you that you have to do something artistic, but then the other side being like, you are a white cis guy. There's been you've been the, the dominant majority forever. And we're finally starting to see a proper shift, starting to see it, um, of, you know, the, the racial and gender and uh, et cetera groups of uh, writers starting to get their proper place in the world. So what should you do then as the white writer, if we're just talking about race, what should you write about? And so I've been ha continuing to grapple with, like, if you're going to do something as an artist, something artistic, like, why not use that platform to do something good with it? And that's essentially what ended up has turned into my craft entirely, but this book being, being a big part of it. Um, and then you're to your, the second part of that question of like, how do you, um, what was kind of the thought process? What was the thought process and the, the, um, what were the, I don't know how you would word that the um, the rules that you'd set in place for yourself so that you're respecting all groups as you attempt to engage with the others around you. Um, maybe my my best one of the big takeaways is talking to um, Tyler Pennock. I think that's how you say his name, um, and getting a nice reminder from him that that like your experience is everything that you are engaging with yourself and that the fact that you, that I, myself, Evan, am working with, like, I'll just use one example, you know, if, if I am at work and somebody collapses on my floor and I'm the first responder, which happens too regularly, <laughs> Evan, the teacher as first responder, as counselor. Um, but let's say I have to do that. That is, you know, that is my experience and I have every right to write about how I engage with that and how it, how I see the systems in place around that and uh, all those problems that cause that person to collapse, how it's affected my mental health, how I can see because I know this person, they're my friend, how I see it affecting their mental health through that week, through that month. Those are all valid realms to write about. And I'm not doing any disrespect by to, to anybody by engaging with those. And of course, there is a little bit of a fine line beside that of, you know, you don't want to be writing things that disrespect a specific person. And I, I feel like in this book, I've been able to find that line fairly successfully. I, I continue to look at the book and think to myself, oh, did I step over it? Did I make anybody feel bad? Is somebody going to be like, oh, that poem is about this person. Evan shouldn't have done that. 
And I, I, so I always have that anxiety, but as I read through it, I say, okay, no, I, I certainly feel like I've focused more on myself and the systems of problems around these scenarios and these people and not the people themselves, um, if that makes sense. Yeah. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. And that's probably a good way to approach reading this book, maybe. Um, because, well, would you say that uh, you do employ other characters and uh, um, have different voices, kind of. You speak uh, through different voices uh, in different poems. But would you say that the majority of these poems are coming from the, a poet speaker like yourself, uh, your voice coming predominantly through? Yeah, I'm glad you. I'm glad you bring that up. That's it's a another point that gets a little tricky as you start to. When you release a book because it ends up in the hands of a lot of people who don't read poetry, right? And they pick it up and say, this is supposed to be Evan's voice in every poem. And then I have to kind of do like a poetry 101 reminder and be like, no, this is a form of art. Like every poem has its own unique voice. Sometimes it's exclusively me. Sometimes it's a mash of people together. Sometimes it's a version of an, my partner or a version of somebody who told me a story. And so you, you do have to remember, of course, it's, as you go into it, that um, it's kind of me, but it's more of, like you say, it's a speaker, and every poem has a, the speaker's voice kind of shifts a bit. Yeah. The book is kind of autobiographical in a lot of ways. Like, to, to talk about the structure right. of it, uh, we start off in the first section being the Metro, what has a lot of poems based in Toronto and Ottawa and... Uh, I guess a little bit of your hometown in in Manitoba. Yeah, uh, Manitoba. yeah. We wanted to add that one uh, first space to make the book actually worth the money. To be completely honest, um, but the second part too was that we did discover that we, the editors and myself, discovered that like I, of course, before living in Northwestern Ontario, was writing these um, more political, socially conscious poems in other places, and um, we really wanted to have like a section that is kind of a, a precursor, a reminder that these aren't like specifically Northwestern Ontario problems. These are like Canada problems. Um, if we're looking at the poems that have problems, there are poems in it that are, that are kind of like snapshots or histories of places as well that don't necessarily have a overtly political stance in them. Um, but as a reminder that, yeah, this isn't just Northwestern Ontario. These are regional problems. These are Canadian problems. North, uh, North American problems. Sure. Yeah, totally. And, you know, that kind of made me think about um, <clears throat> something you wrote in the... So you're a regular contributor to the Cloud Lake Literary... Yeah, now a literary journal and uh, a funded one. So they now have Ontario Arts Council funding and now I'm the fiction editor as there as well. And yeah, so you, you you've written... I don't know if you're planning on continuing to write blog posts for them, but you've written a number for, of blog posts for them already. Uh, and I read the one, uh, one of your more recent ones, uh, I think it's titled, You Can't Wait Around for the Muse to Speak, uh, which is a fun article on its own. But it also, in it, you explained that you moved to Northern Ontario because, um, well, I have it in my notes here. I'm going to quote you to you. <laughs> I hope that's not too hard. Oh, do it. That's fun. But you said... <laughs> 
You said you moved because, uh, quote, Toronto didn't offer exposure to the cultural topics you were compelled to write about. So that kind of like spoke to me. I read that obviously after I found out that we'd be having this discussion and I was trying to think of, um, yeah, what motivated you to write these poems. And I found it interesting that you thought that you were unable to or or just not being... Um, in the community that you're now in uh, was kind of a hindrance to your ability to write about that. What, what, is that fair to say? It is. And it's the true to the degree. I would also add, there's a little like little asterisk on that, that of course it was five years ago when I was less versed and intelligent uh, about these topics and issues, you know, um, to comment a little bit on that, like we were, we were, focusing as lots of the country was and still is and should on indigenous rights issues when we were living in in Toronto. Um, and I was doing that through, we were both, my partner and I were doing that, th- um, focusing on these and helping organizations independently and a little bit through academia as well. But kind of in both scenarios, we found a lot of like armchair work happening. Um, a lot of like, for example, a lot of academics saying what was right and wrong and how you should, how people should and shouldn't help from their like university. And of course there were a lot of these people who were doing great work and then were engaging with organizations in Toronto. I don't know more movements and, and other protests at the at INAC building. These are things that we helped out with as well. So there were good people there doing it, but a lot of it, especially academia, wasn't actually doing anything other than talking. <laughs> um, and so it was a deterrent to us. We said, like, well, first we we said, well, let's actually go to First Nations and see what's going on firsthand. Um, and we did. I think it was 2017. We just drove uh, from Winnipeg to, or from Toronto to Winnipeg, um, and we stopped at every First Nation we could. We stopped at 25 places. And we visit, like, band council offices and health centers and nursing stations and just, like, hang out for the day and chat. Um and it was hugely eye-opening because it didn't align at all with what academic, what, what the academic conversations were doing. Um, and it made us, it showed us a lot of angles of these issues that just weren't being talked about outside of academia. And academia was doing what academia does. It focuses on these high-level conversations and often about the language you should use. And, and that just wasn't the reality of, like, the immediate help that was needed on the ground in places, like staffing, for instance. Um, and uh, so it was a big, yeah, big eye-opener. And so one of the big reasons we moved um, and one of the big reasons I continued to write about it. And and that makes a lot of sense, you know, with living in city centres, you can pretty easily distance yourself from uh, troubles, especially of, like, Northern Ontario, somewhere far away, uh, you can brush it all off. And also with all of, all of the narratives of uh, Indigenous people's experiences in Canada, uh, or the colonial project that we call Canada, you know, it's it's easy to conflate them to be like one monolithic experience. And a lot of, I think, what uh, what the last section of your book, the Sioux Falls, or sorry, the Sioux Lookout rather, uh, section, has all of these experiences of uh, of people's just lives that you're documenting, um, in in really yeah in really unique ways or like 
not not that they're super unique like the, a lot of i think what you're trying to say is like what i'm showing in these poems isn't um isn't unusual and the fact that like reading something like uh yeah someone collapsing in 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 your classroom or something uh something like that isn't an experience that is um won't be uh featured in the news uh, i was just rereading one of the poems from that section where you talk about how the only time a CBC news uh, SUV is in is in your community is when there's like a, a murder. It's, and it's got to be like a simple murder, right? It's got to be like a Hollywood style, gruesome, this person did it murder, right? Where people like people are die all the time from strange deaths or unavoidable or avoidable things, alcohol related um colonially related they just they're just not as simple as like somebody came out with a knife and stabbed them and so it doesn't yeah they don't come like here's a strange kind of related example a house in our just outside of town literally exploded this is unrelated to like like a colonial based problem but it literally propane tanks everything exploded people were sent emergency to toronto to the hospital it didn't make any news i'm like you put that in a city and that's like front page cbc news um yeah it's so strange right but that and that's kind of the reality of rural living throughout the nation it's just information just doesn't pass that far but in a place like this where there's so many unique issues the unique um colonial and racial issues also don't go very far which is a frustrating part reading about all of this i couldn't help to think i'm not an expert in the in the genre i guess of like the poetry as witness sort of thing um but i kept kind of thinking about that that you know i think poetry of witness you know like what carolyn forche was doing was documenting um you know huge political strife and unrest and this could be very similar to that like it's you aren't an impressed person as a white cis man as you said but um, but you're living amongst your community and you're witnessing all of this oppression uh, or what could, could be argued as is oppression of, of these people. Yeah, it's like, I'm here. Like, a, like what else am I going to do, right? I'm here, I'm a writer, I'm a poet. Like, this is what's going to happen if I keep my eyes open. Yeah, I, I was wondering if you, like, had ever thought about that, like that a poetry as witness sort of approach to, to telling these stories. Um, you know, I don't... I don't think about it like that, but as you say it, I think maybe that's just because like all of the writing that I'm, that I like and that I'm reading happens to fall into that kind of a category. Like I'm going through Audre Lorde's collected work and it really is all that. It's like her just witnessing the people around her, her loves, people she sees on the street, family members, and like documenting that interaction, what it was emotionally to her. But it feels like, like book after book, that's what she's doing. Um, and I'm reading a lot like that and I see it and I'm like, oh, of course, this is what you write about as you see it happening around you. It just feels so natural. I was going to make one other comment just to my last point about, uh, well, connecting to a few of our past points. Um, I remember living in Toronto and, and like you said, I used to run that slackline uh, reading and art series. And I remember the biggest topic of conversation was always at that point was like, make sure that you have a good and evolving land acknowledgement. And I'm not like trying to, to dismiss land acknowledgements, like that's really important. Um, but it, that was like the biggest thing was like, is Evan saying the right words for this? And it's like, 
the real biggest issue that I would say today is like when I get onto and I'm dealing with First Nations is like they do not care what languages I'm using. They do not care what skin color I have. They just want someone like talking to people in like a nursing station. They just want someone to come and work in the nursing station. It's like the problem is not any of those other things. It's like we need someone physically here to like help somebody. <laughs> um, and that would be my big pro, my big exclaimer for this podcast would be like, if you actually want to make a difference, like most First Nations just want staff. If you're willing to move, you can get paid really well. You'll have a wonderful life. You'll eat great. You'll have it'll, it'll all be wonderful. But they just need people regardless of who you are. Yeah. We've been talking for a while and I wonder if you would like to read a poem oh, sure. before we get too far in and yeah. So this one actually is a bit longer. Uh, it's called Regarding Ember. Um, maybe we can even chat about it after. Um, there's actually a, a wonderful poet in Toronto, Taj. I don't know if you know Taj. He's a calligrapher poet. He's an architect professor at Carleton as well. Um, he's turned out to be a great friend and supporter of mine, but he did a beautiful piece of calligraphy art of a line from this poem. So thank you, Taj. Um, so page 71 regarding Ember. There are many families like the Chapmans, many with a mother's eyes ablaze with wisdom, hands clapping flour in the sun for baking on a spring day, hunger alit by children, grubby-faced and gorgeous, a toddler's hair an inferno, the munchkins sweaty from the skip-gallop return from every school day. The loss of this family overnight is synonymous with house fire with a quick 10-minute burn of kin into cinder, with a second-hand pain that can smother you. In a small northern town, it is one thing to watch smoke snake towards the clouds, and another to remember the humans in its embers. This is the unlabeled step beyond traumatic, and hot on its smoldering heels is the prelude to healing, a job for an optimist someone tender but armored. They must choose what charcoal was particle board and what, would what was once half-grown human. They must knead the grief from hands that hold the sorting shovel in the grave frame of aftermath. They must rinse the dust from a neighborhood's linens before it settles into depressions. They must be willing to light the next fire. In the orange fixed wing is Larissa sitting for 70 rattling minute, minutes in paramedic thought. She will unbuckle in the imminent aftermath of a building in Kitchener-Mekuzib in Inawag was blackened like a battleground. What gauze do you bring to bandage the words, the wounds of burned victims already dead? If the fire extinguished hours ago, when is the emergency over? After her airplane ambulance lands, a pickup truck drops her at the big trout ashes to help a man from the nest he's made beside the colts. A man with a father's prudence now crawling behind his eyes. A man with fingers evaporated by flame. A man outbursting hysteric with a near vegetable mind. He comments on the impotence of words. Days later, I found a, find a man crouched in a Sioux lookout nook, drinking wine beside my office door. I begin our chat with an attempt to console, 
and his growls say that I can't, and his shout says that he'll take his toddler's bodies home himself tonight. He is cradling a shriveled onion, says he found it live, surviving in the air ducts. Says his lack of tears belittles him, so he's heaving them artificially. Says I am a feeble listener. Says that the, that the crackle from the peeled onion should make me think that the house is still on fire. Because it is. Thank you. Uh, so if you didn't know, that is about a fire. Um, a real fire it's of course referencing all fires that are happening in this region, which it shouldn't be happening, but it's about a real house fire up in Big Trout Lake First Nation. Um, happened a couple of years ago, and uh, I think everybody in the house at that point, maybe one person didn't. Um, yeah, actually the, the one older man didn't because he wasn't in the house. Um, but I'm bringing in a lot of different stories and kind of mashing them together, but of course trying to bring some light to some terrible um, living conditions that are happening around mm -hmm. this region. Yeah, the, that line, he comments on the impotence of words, is, yeah, that, that could sum up a lot of um, descriptions of someone facing um, unfathomable grief and how, how, to, how it's impossible to comment precisely on what those emotions exactly yeah. are. I heard a little interview with... Gabber Mate or Gabber Mate, depending how you pronounce, want to pronounce it. I'm sure there's a right way. I just don't know it. Um, of him talking about walking through East Van and saying a very simple line, a very simple fact that nobody here, all the people around him uh, experiencing homelessness, nobody here has not experienced it like epic trauma. And that is like exactly the case for all of the people that were engaging at the learning center who were experiencing homelessness to some degree or addiction to a massive degree. It's like all of them have something incredibly intense that happened to them. Like there's no, nobody just like voluntarily walked out on the street. It's something just as tragic as this house fire that led to that. And so unfortunately, this is just, this poem I read is just trying to make a snapshot of one example for one person we see. And unfortunately it's dozens of people who have, all of, you know, and each one of them has an incredibly traumatic story behind what brought them to that, that low state in their life at that point. And you mentioned a bit earlier that, you know, your recording of your experiences with interacting with these people is kind of for your mental health as well as for the purpose of sharing the stories, I guess. Um, would you say that there's, yeah, that, that putting these stories into poetry is catharsis for you or helps you deal with um deal with what you're hearing and experiencing yeah it's a it's a very important question and conversation to have i was reminded by a good friend charlie that the um you know the the struggling mental health the struggling author is a very problematic trope and that you don't you know as much as it's like still a bit romanticized um, you don't want to actually fall into that because, you know, it's very dangerous for an author to just use writing as their only mode of release from trauma. Um, so to your question, yes, absolutely. These things are a form of it. Um, and I constantly try, succeed to some ways and not constantly try to 
use proper forms of, of, of trauma relief, of, you know, uh, talking to my partner and working through things, um, through other types of writing. Um, but absolutely. And I think most, most writers who are doing things within such an emotional realm, I mean, how could you not find some benefit to, to releasing all of that emotion onto the page? Um, you know, it, it does work to some degree. And, and a lot of these poems are that they are attempts to reconcile very difficult work days your co-workers at the learning center would you say they also or uh, have artistic outlets or healthy outlets for for their experiences <laughs> and trauma? no <laughs> i think it is i since i started working there i've made a point to remind them that like hey these are not normal work days <laughs> like not people in other offices don't experience these things and uh but kind of before covid when we were meeting in person it was i made a point to say like let we need to debrief after these we need to have you know immediate debriefs and and check-ins to make sure people are okay and and it seems like i've had a good impact on the, the rest of the organization i i certainly hear it now from the bosses more of like hey here are our support systems here's our like employment free counseling line so it's working. It's creating a more a more mental health, healthy workplace, which is good. Well, thank you so much for this conversation, Evan. Uh, best of luck with the rest of the hopefully plenty uh, plentiful interviews that you give on this book and your later yes, projects. Thank as well. you so much. It is so great to uh, be here and uh, chat with you again. That was Art Poetry's Chris Johnson in conversation with Evan Jay about his acclaimed collection, Ripping Down Half the Trees. As always, I want to thank you for listening and for supporting authors and booksellers through these difficult times. If you enjoy the podcast or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. I want to thank the Ottawa Public Library, the Government of Canada, the Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, Carleton University, and CBC for their ongoing support. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubé. Kira Harris is our program director. And I'm Sean Wilson. Thank you for listening.